brought to you by Prep Matters and the book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. I think one of the hardest things, but also the real opportunity of parenting a middle schooler is to get to excavate and remember your middle school self, reconnect with that, uh, but also find empathy for our kids. It's, it's easy as adults to forget how change feels at that level of intensity. Literally, mm -hmm. your body is different. Your emotions are different. You understand things differently almost on a daily basis. Uh, the more we empathize with that, the more we get them and they'll feel it as well. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. My guest today is Chris Bong. Chris is an education leader, writer, and speaker, passionate about helping people discover and reach more of their human potential. He's the director of Argonaut, a middle school advisory program, and prior to that, was co-founder and head of school at Millennium School, a progressive laboratory middle school in San Francisco. Chris has received the Ashoka Fellowship, the Draper Richards Kaplan Fellowship for Social Entrepreneurship, and the Bay Area Jefferson Award for Public Service. Chris earned degrees in psychology and management from the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School of Business and has taught with the Breakthrough Collaborative in the Philadelphia Public Schools. Chris also writes and speaks on topics of interest to educators, parents, and adolescents. His book, Finding the Magic in Middle School, will be released in August of 2022. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much, Ned. Great to be here. So, so you've done some really cool stuff in educating kids in ways that are a little different than, you know, quote unquote, mainstream public education is. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited to jump into this stuff. Um, your expertise, really, your lived experience is most in middle school. Can you can you kind of tell us how you came to focus on middle school education is, is kind of your, your, your jam? Well, it's the to me, it's the most ironic thing in the world, because it was the one thing I was certain I would never do <laughs> as soon as I left my own K through 12 school. And, you know, middle and high school were, were generally pretty rough for me. And I thought I went mm -hmm. into college thinking, not sure what I'm going to do, but I just want to be far away from that world. And, you know, the universe has a funny way of working, <laughs> pulling you back around <laughs> to those things. There was unfinished business, clearly. And you know, for me, it came from starting to finally reflect on my own middle and high school years and realize I was pretty miserable during most of those and then realize maybe it didn't have to be that bad. And why is it exactly that middle school in particular is seen as guaranteed to be the worst part of your life, at least of your K through 12 life? Like, how did that happen that a time that is so transformative and now knowing the neuroscience, you know, unbelievably full of potential that it became seen as just the worst time that you've just got to get through, keep your head down and hope you're not traumatized. So that that was my signal that there's some potential work to be done here. 
my uh, my writing partner Bill Stickshrud, uh shares a story as, as a, a a family who who came to them a seventh grade boy who was you know things weren't going well and the dad was was just felt so badly for his kid having such a hard time of it and he's just in tears he said seventh seventh grade this should be the best time of his life and Bill just looked at him and smiled and said well obviously you skipped seventh grade <laughs> exactly <laughs> I mean. It's wild. Right now, if you Google middle school on Amazon, I think the top hit is middle school colon the worst years of my life, which is both a yeah. book and now a series. It's like, this is how we expect these years to be. It's no surprise in a way. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. We may have already lost of our, all of our listeners who, you know, just had flashbacks to their seventh grade and they just they just hit, <laughs> hit stop. You know, you and I were able to talk a little bit before this and 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 you talk about the sort of the, the 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 vulnerability of middle school when when kids are transitioning from from kids to to adults and 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 it's complicated right but also how it's such an opportunity so so for parents are like give me a break it's just you know it's just put your head down and try not to get stuffed into a locker or or have incriminating pictures you know for them to be tormented with later in life tell us more about you know why in your experience why is this actually such an opportunity yeah, well, I start with the neuroscience with this. And one of the most important findings is that early childhood and early adolescence are the two peak times in our whole lives of brain development. So zero to five and roughly 11 to 16. So if you think about zero to five, you know, we don't expect it to be easy as parents. I have three kids. One of them is in the <laughs> toddler years right now. And, you know, we, we think about it developmentally, we get resources, when they have their sleep regressions, you know, we try to remember that this is a developmental thing they're going through. And, and frankly, that, that helps us immensely. You know, that's why we don't throw them out the window when, you know, they're keeping us up all night. <laughs> and have second uh, and third children, right? <laughs> exactly. Even that. Uh, but with middle school, you know, it's, it's really the same. It's a time of rapid brain change. And that makes it the, also the hardest time to parent because they're trying to integrate so much new capability that's coming online literally every day. So if we don't have that developmental view for middle school, we're going to tear our hair out, you know, whether we're parents or mm. teachers. And so that's the whole thrust of my work, which is to understand developmentally what's going on so that we can work with them, appreciate them and not go completely bonkers. So if I may, what um, is there a an insight or two about that, you know, kind of the details of that of that brain development? that you know you didn't know or that you think most parents who are listening to this might not know that would help them to, to understand and put put this into context that the, the way they see their kids sometimes struggling and see it actually as a, as a benefit. Yeah. I think if I had to sum it up as as one key transformation that's happening with from the brain science, it's that they are now becoming part of the bigger social world and they have to recreate every aspect of themselves in a social context. You know, pre-puberty, pre-middle school, they can kind of be wonderfully ignorant about how they're perceived. You know, inclusion and exclusion and groupings is not always crystal clear to them. Mm -hmm. In middle school, their brains are becoming hyper-socially sensitized. So they're seeing all of that. They're wondering what it means. And they're wondering if they can be themselves. You know, so much about what's hard in middle school, but also where it can be better is about helping them transform into sophisticated social creatures. 
You know, one of the things, and I, I hope you can correct me if I get the science of this wrong, but one of the things that I, I think I understand is that part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens that, that's sort of tied with social connection, just is massive flourishing during early adolescence where all of a sudden, you know, as you know, Bill Six would say, <clears throat> that peers become like crack to kids. They're just so incredibly in tune. And it's not that they don't care what mom and dad and the teachers care about, but they're just so widely, wildly attuned to it. And the, you know, what's, you know, some of people say that the, that well, they, they have no sense of their own mortality. They have no sense of risk. It's not that they don't understand those risks. It's just that the rewards that they ascribe to risky behavior, to talking to this person, to being cool, whatever flavor that looks like, they just weight that so much more highly. And that's part of the reason we see um, kids who might have been doing things the right way, again, air quotes, doing things in ways that seem a little <laughs> short-sighted. Is Precisely. that Absolutely. I mean, it's the metaphor I sometimes use is it, it's like parents are in black and white talking to you through subtitles and your peers are in full living color surround sounds. There's, oh, there's no it. competition. It, it's not intentional either. It's just a draw biologically toward peers. Oh, I love it. You know, <laughs> there's a story in our book when Bill, when he was, so Bill's 72 and, and, and hopefully at this point a mature adult, but he, <laughs> he said, he described, he said when he was I guess he was 14. He said, my friend and I were walking across the schoolyard and we found an unopened bottle of beer. And we looked at it and we put it in our pocket and then we snuck it into the brown bag lunch of some girl who had no experience with beer, was probably very goody-goody, just because we wanted to see her reaction. And of course, you know, the teachers were involved and we're down at the principal and, and, <laughs> and, and, and this is not acceptable. And he said, he said, honest to gosh, I still think it's funny. Right. And I knew that this was not what I should be doing. It's just that the anticipation reward of guys like what I did was just so, yeah. uh, was so well, intense. It's another, I think this is a great angle for us as parents, you know, for those listening who have a middle schooler or have one heading toward that, which is our, we still are middle schoolers. We are just covered up with layers and I think one of the hardest things, but also the real opportunity of parenting a middle schooler is to get to excavate and remember your middle school self, reconnect with that, find maybe some of our own sources of passion and growth that we papered over back then, uh, but also find empathy for our kids. Because it's easy as adults to forget how change feels at that level of intensity. Literally, mm -hmm. you're body is different. Your emotions are different. You understand things differently, almost on a daily basis. Uh, the more we empathize with that, the more we get them and they'll feel it as well. Yeah. I, I think that's such a great point. You know, in the, our, our new book, Bill and I have um, called What He Say, we, the first chapter is about empathy and validation as tools really to get buy-in because as parents, you know, we've lived this experience. We can see how you're on a path that's kind of abandoned and, and we want to talk kids out of it. Right. But if we start leading with logic and, and particularly not, if kids don't feel like we understand their experience, then like, Oh my God, dad, you're a million years old. You couldn't possibly understand where, approaching them empathetically and they say, oh, well, it makes sense to me that, you, that it matters a lot to you, you know, that, that, you know, that everyone else has a jacket and you don't have one of those and you feel like you're the only, that, I get that, right? That it's such a powerful tool 
to get buy-in because it seems to me that middle school kids especially are in this complicated place where, yeah, they care, they're so sensitive to what their peers think about them, but they also need and want, even though they don't always act like it, want good advice from mom and dad. And it's just that if we are empathetic and it makes sense to me that you feel that way, they're much more likely to hear our advice as something to think about that they're you know, and, and influence rather than trying to exert power over them. And then they try to resist exactly. what's exactly. interest. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, a helpful metaphor for parents is to think about, you know, if, if you were going on a trek, a wilderness trek, because adolescence is certainly a wilderness, you know, in good and bad ways, you know, who would you hire as a guide? What kind of person would you want to come with you? And mm. for most of us, I think we'd want someone who, you know, had expertise, but was also humble, who wasn't constantly talking at us the entire time of the journey, but would just, you know, jump in when it was really important. You know, that's who they need us to be. That's who adolescents want their parents or teachers to be. Closer to a guide, not not the boss, uh, not the constant yeah, yeah. warning you every three seconds uh, kind of person, but someone to walk by your side. Oh, I was in a, I was years ago, I was um, with my wife and kids, we were hiking and um, it was, it was, it was in this, uh, it was in Arizona and this, this, um, this uh, stream, this river came, came down through um, this can, this canyon had been carved up by this river. And so to go up this, to go up this canyon, one, one is constantly going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it's a little perilous. Sometimes there are logs set up sometimes, you know, on rocks and it was, the whole thing was a little, little dicey, right? And there was this mom and she, with her, her kids and they were, I don't know, they were six and eight or eight, 10 or something like this. And be careful, be careful, be careful, be careful, be careful, like every 30 seconds. And all I could think was what we're really asking, what you're really hoping is that your kid takes care and pays attention to the thing that could be challenging, right? And, you know, focus on this. But by saying, be careful, be careful, be careful. They're not actually paying attention to the life, the path that they're walking. They're paying attention to you and possibly wanting to, you know, push you off a log into a tree. Exactly. Exactly. Right? You know? Yeah. Then you become the problem and you're the focus of their attention and their their energy goes to resisting you rather than figuring out the path. Yeah. Yeah. No, one of the things, I mean, we know that there are a lot of ways to learn. And sometimes that's out of a book. Sometimes that's what people say to us. And sometimes it's just our own darn experience, right? <laughs> and um, from a brain science perspective, we know that um, kids are really developing the brains, you know, that they'll carry into adulthood. And the incredible value of doing things for yourself and in perfect world, solving things for yourself where, you know, we have this tendency to always want to pull a kid out of the drink and, and, and jump in, you know, throw on our super mom or super dad cape and, and save things. But then we kind of turn the kid into, you know, the damsel in distress, you know, tied down on the train tracks or going over the waterfall in a barrel where if we can offer hype, but, but, and, and allow kids to, to navigate even things when they're messy, um, to have that experience of, of greater agency themselves. Precisely. And, and if you think back, you know, over our history as a species, you know, that was, those were the middle school years when young people got launched into responsibility, autonomy, you know, taking care of people, economic productivity, you know, that's in some ways how we've evolved. And it's, it's right. great that we have the luxury of giving them a longer education, but if we don't also meet that need to feel valuable, by what they can do for others, then mm-hmm. I think we've missed part of the puzzle. 
Now, so so you shared a little bit with me the model for the Millennium School, and I'd love for you to sort of to tell a little bit about the school and and kind of how you guys approach this, and then I'd like to talk about you know some of the lessons that can apply to kids who don't have the a, a Millennium School in, in their neighborhood. But before we you know before we sort of pull out lessons, tell us about this great place that you co-founded. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, so we started now eight. No, nine years ago, gosh, um, trying to build a laboratory for how middle school could be. And it, in some ways, incredibly hard, in some ways, the lowest bar in the world, because people so uniformly <laughs> think that middle school sucks. That it's like, let's just build a better one. Right. And, um, you know, before we, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so we, and we really wanted to be this, have the spirit of a lab school where we're working with researchers. We connected with amazing people at Stanford and UC Berkeley and Columbia and elsewhere to try to bring some new ideas into the middle school world, uh, to test them out and hopefully make them more approachable, accessible for others. Uh, and so the, the core of it, really, the foundation is to build it around a developmental framework to say, here's what we think from what we know of the psychology and the brain science. Here's what we think middle schoolers are primed to do. You know, before we stress about standardized tests or how to get them into high school and all of that, which is also important, but first let's understand what they're primed to do and work with those drives, help them meet those developmental needs. Then we'll see them actually care about it. Uh, and our theory was we'll see a different kind of middle schooler happy to say now at the sixth uh, class coming through that it's true. You do see a really different kind of middle schooler. They're not checked out. You know, of course, everyone has their down days, but yeah. this is a kind of student who wants to engage, still motivated, feels like what's important to them is reflected in what they see in school. So I want to report first that it's possible <laughs> that middle school can be awesome. And, you know, to, to say very briefly what I think, um, you know, needs to happen for that, it's that I think there are three core drives that middle schoolers have and schools have to be designed to work with these drives. And they are simply put uh, the drive to figure out who you are, your authentic identity. Now that you're in this complicated social world and you're getting all kinds of messages. Second, the drive to figure out relationship. You know, now that I am more savvy and more sophisticated, what does it mean to be a friend or to end a friendship or to repair? Uh, what does it mean to be in a team or lead a team? Uh, and then the third is the drive to contribute. It's that deep desire we were speaking to before to feel like I can do something valuable for other people. And when I see in their eyes that this was valuable, I will start to feel valuable too. So if school lets you do that, and there are lots of ways you know, we could talk about, um, then I think middle school can be pretty awesome. Yeah, boy, that is, uh, that is lovely. I'm, I mean, my... Uh, top of my head when I think about the who you are I'm thinking about you know all the the movement and in, in misguided in my view and I'm sure in yours as well of, of schools that are, are are trying to limit books right and ban books because mm -hmm. we don't want kids to as though um books will lead kids in directions that we don't want that we might not want them to go whatever whatever that is as opposed to um we want them to explore the world I remember I had a conversation with a family some while ago and the parents were saying, oh, my gosh, she questions everything that we tell her. And I looked and said, that's fantastic. Exactly. And they looked at me like, what? 
And I said, no, 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 no. I want my kids. To, oh my gosh, is that right? And but then go off and think about it and play with and beat it up six ways to Sunday. And the perfect world, they come around. We're going. Yeah, that actually. Okay, I can see that because then it's become their belief, right? It's not just forced down the throat. And you have a kid who isn't reflexively taken on whatever belief the nearest person to them has sort of forced on them, right? Bingo. I mean, but there's an interesting, yeah, very hard to do. Hard, hard to stand in that fire in a sense as adults, but, but so important to I me. Mean, what better sign that their brains are developing and growing than their ability to question things and see beneath them. We don't want them to stay superficial thinkers who just, as much as might be nice in the moment <laughs> to just yeah, receive our easier. orders. Uh, yeah. It's not really what we want on a deeper level. So, so you were talking before about, um, uh, when you and I had the conversation before about some of the school, you know, the kids would learn about say sleep, right. And then they would investigate this and kind of make it sort of, you know, almost a project and then share ideas and then bring this to their parents. Walk us through what that looks like. Cause it's I'm like, this is fantastic. Right? That's not how I remember middle school. So walk, <laughs> us, walk us through this. Yeah. You know, in general, I just think we baby middle schoolers, we underestimate them so much. And so this is just an example of what happens if instead of lecturing them about something like sleep or, you know, the risks of social media, what if we actually, entrusted them with the data, same data that we see. In some ways, they'll have more savvy and insight. Ask them to understand it. Even ask them to do experiments on themselves. You know, what if I, you know, to use the sleep example, you know, change when I go to bed? You know, what happens to my, you know, perception of focus or even happiness the next day? And then report on their findings to parents and make that the parent education. You know, thinking mm. about a wonderful millennium teacher created a project where students studied uh, phone addiction and technology addiction and looked at all the research about what happens in our brains when this amazing miracle device is in front of us. And their final project was our parent education night about technology use. And the adults were not leading the night, the, the parents were the students. And it was so powerful. The kids felt like they were capable of understanding, managing this, and even teaching us dumb adults who are not as you know native to this technology <laughs> as they are. So, yeah. Out, out, of, out of curiosity, w w were there any uh, kind of surprising either insights that kids came up with or changes in behavior that they made based on this new knowledge? The number one for me is that they, the kids themselves recommended we should turn our phones in when we walk into the school because the addictive power is too great. You can't compete with it. And we would rather be done with them. And it wasn't unanimous, but a majority of students said, this seems like a better path based on the research we've seen. And ever since then, that's our policy at Millennium School. They put their phones in a box when they walk in the door, they pick them up when they leave. Frankly, we were too scared to make that policy as adults we thought there'd be just so yeah. much massive resistance but yeah, yeah. the kids made it themselves that makes me so happy i uh i'd given a talk to a, a independent school here in dc and they and they came in and part of it was talking about you know technology and sleep and they came to me so well, you know what should we be doing and i and i'm, I'm delighted to hear the, your experience born out i said it seems to me you should get together a bunch of kids and have the students and have them create the tech policy and they're like 
oh, no, 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 we can never do that. Like, <laughs> okay, well, spend the rest of your life trying to outwit teenagers and their use of technology. Right. You'll never win that. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> just wave the white flag. Yeah. I just, so much of this is about trusting them more. And what do you all do in terms of relationships and how you support those, how you talk with kids about the importance of give them the space to, 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 to learn and grow and be and do. I mean, what does that, what does that look like? Yeah. One of my big lessons from Millennium School and others I've seen is that when advisory goes well, it's really the heart of the school. And mm. that's a big caveat because I think often advisory doesn't go that well. <laughs> a lot of right, schools right, right, have right. it. And it's often kind of hangout time. It's not negative necessarily, but it's just yeah. kind of like we'll cool our, our jets for a little bit. Uh, but when it goes well, it's a group that's consistent. You know, one teacher, one group of students, ideally not too big of a group, 15 kids or less together for a long time, ideally at least a year, where they're meeting regularly and they're given space and safe space to talk about what they wanna talk about. It could be stress oh, about a test coming up. It could be, how do I ask someone to the dance? Could be my brother's driving me crazy. You know, Whatever is actually top of mind to them, that becomes our topic and we can weave in social emotional tools, but it's always in response, not you know, lecturing at them about a social emotional tool. So we've got the agenda. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Today we'll do deep breathing. Forget about what you care about. Um, so <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, that was a lesson from millennium that advisory is, is key. And I think mm. it's probably the thing that middle schoolers are most primed to learn, you know, their social and emotional intelligence is what's growing the fastest. So fast forward to Argonaut, this project now, it, it was just realizing most kids don't have that. They don't have a great advisory space where they can talk with peers, but it's facilitated by an adult. Uh, and so Argonaut is that. It's an advisory that anyone in the world can sign up for. Um, we've got kids from four continents so far, and it's so interesting to see them talk about what it's like to be a middle schooler, you know, in Japan or in England, in the U.S., in the Philippines, in Mexico. Um, it's really rich um, because they find that there's so much more in common uh, and their, their perspectives are helpful to each other. Uh, so that's it in a nutshell. It's been such a joy to get to create. I imagine that the real challenge there, the real challenge and the real um benefit is creating that um safe space you know that 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 trust among folks what what does that look like you know how, how do how do um how do teachers facilitate you know the sort of i assume kind of organic development of that yeah then that's actually the other side so we also train teachers um because it is a really distinct set of skills like how do you shift from instructor to facilitator where it's hmm. not about conveying knowledge efficiently. It's about creating safety and inviting students to be curious about each other, which they want to be anyways. They just want to know that it's okay and it's safe hmm. um, to ask about each other, to share parts of their lives. <clears throat> it's, it's a set of facilitation skills that I think a lot of teachers have intuitively, but often want to practice more intentionally. And that's why we do the trainings. Uh, it's something that, you know, I think great middle school teachers do this in part by just being 
weirdly themselves. <laughs> That's kind of, I think, the essence of a great middle school teacher is you're comfortable with yourself. We're all weird underneath, you know, whatever mask we're wearing, and they're willing to share that. So part of it is just the adult modeling of authenticity. Hmm. I have a <laughs> I have a friend who's a singer-songwriter, uh, and she has a song called Normal. Mm. And part of the uh, part of the uh, refrain is that normal is just a setting on the washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, is love great. I love Which that. I love that. Which is great. She goes on and talks about all the you know different ways that love goes and families and relationships and all different types of folks and uh, uh, that's fun. Yeah, I mean, if honestly, if I could say one thing to parents and teachers of this age, it's to be less normal because none of us are actually normal and middle schoolers relate better to adults who are, you know, more authentic, quirky, goofy, like we all are underneath it all. Yeah. It's, it makes me think of, um, um, Todd Rose, the end of average, you know, and how basically they're like, nobody's actually average. Right. You know, and, and I, the, uh, one imagines the kind of emotional contortions <laughs> one has to go through to try to be whatever that, paradigm of normalcy is and pretty thing middle school oof, oof, yeah. all those uh all yeah <laughs> challenging um when you think about so w when you think so when we look at what millennium is school has done so well what are things for for families who if you have, if they're teachers who are listening to this or administrators um what are things that you think kind of any school could do if, if they don't necessarily have the opportunity to kind of start top of the rasa the, the, the way you do with a new school or you know what can parents be doing to to support some of these things you've, you've talked you've talked about knowing that you know some things we can change and some things are harder to change yeah i i suggest two things uh, the first would be advisory and that's because you know it's so hard to work new programs in but most middle mm -hmm. schools in the u.s at least already have advisory time but often don't really feel, a lot of teachers don't feel like they've ever been prepared or trained in what to do with it. So I think beginning point would be, what if we made advisory a deeper resource for students yeah. where it's not yeah. just administrative announcements or homework. Like this is actually a space where we have some training and support and skills to invite a deeper conversation. Uh, as part of that, by the way, I think really all educators should also be in advisories for adults, that it's also something that we need because teachers oh, are so isolated. And yeah. you know, I've been a teacher and I've been a principal and both of those roles are isolating. You know, principal doesn't get much time to spend around other principals. Teachers are often the only adult in the room. Like we need to break out of that. Um, advisories is, is one way. Oh, I love that point. I, I, I had the great fortune uh, at the start of uh, at the start of COVID to get into um, a, a group of um, parenting authors. And initially, it was really kind of everyone looking at each other on Zoom going, <gasps> you know, so many people, their livelihood is being paid speakers, you know, going to schools, and that just disappeared in a heartbeat. Mm. But one of the interesting things was over time, we're now, you know, two years into this, it really became a support group, right? And I, you love to see what the, the Kaki Lewis, Catherine Reynolds Lewis, who, was, who set this up, the first thing she had everyone do at the start of every meeting, everyone gets two minutes, two and a half, three minutes, whatever we, depending on how many people, to check in and talk about what's, you know, what's going well, 
what's going, what's hard, what's a question that, that folks have. And it has been the darndest thing of people sharing really hard stuff of what's going on about a parent with, you know, Alzheimer's or someone with a medical issue or a kid who's struggling and um, to have people to share these things with them. And these are people who kind of, it's just, it's been fantastic. And so one of the people in this group is Julie Lithcott Hames, who a lot of people know of, who just couldn't be a better human. And she just stopped and she said, this is what all teachers need. This is hard work. It is hard dealing with other people's hard stuff and their feelings and hanging with them. And the other day I was talking with a woman who's a, who was an incredible clinician. And she said, every, and I didn't know this, every person who becomes a psychotherapist does their own psychotherapy and has their own therapist going on. And in many ways, when you're talking about the social emotional learning and helping kids through really hard, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's benign, but sometimes it's really challenging stuff in middle school. Um, because we're all talking about how do we, how do we help teachers? And, and I, I'm, 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 I love that you brought this point up because you're the second person in, in two weeks who said, you know, we need these support groups. We need this advisory for, for teachers in order for them to do their best work. That's it. That's it. And it's, as you said, with that group, it doesn't take it. Let me put it differently. It's surprisingly within reach. You know, it just yeah. takes someone making an invitation to say, let's take two minutes each and just check in however deeply you want about how your yeah. life is going. And as long as it's a safe space and people are not, you know, making fun of each other yeah, pretty yeah. quickly, that becomes an incredible resource, you know, any age, yeah. whether you're 13 years old, figuring out all the things you're figuring out or 45 year olds figuring out all the difficult things we're figuring out, you know, however, however it is, we need that. Yeah, we're still weird middle schoolers just with, you know, grayer hair and my yeah. less hair. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth. Um, so, you know, I, and I, I, I love that. I love that point, Chris, the idea that um, it's surprisingly within reach. Um, because I think so often when we think about um, educational change, it often feels like we have to overhaul the whole system or, hey, let's come up with another super important, must be done initiative to put on top of the already, you know, teetering pile of initiatives, all of which must be done, <sighs> you know, and, and to have it to have an approach that's um, that already works within the framework of what folks have. Do you talk about this in your new book? Is this is this in the chapter in there? Yeah, oh, it's a key chapter in there. <laughs> I would. I guess that was a dopey question, but I felt like I had to had to answer it. No, thank you. Yeah, it's it's central to this, as I think, you know, perhaps the best way we improve schools is to organize them around wellness. Mm -hmm. And if we want to do that, we have to start with the adults first. You can't ask a super stressed out teacher to teach wellness to someone. I mean, that's almost insulting. <sighs> like first, we support the adults. We adults then will kind of live it. And most of the curriculum is unspoken anyways. And then when we do speak about it, we'll have credibility. And it doesn't mean that wow. wellness means we're happy all the time. It, it means right. we have the tools to sustain ourselves through the ups and downs. Right. right. Yeah. It's interesting. There's um, in our, in our first book, The Self-Driven Child, we talk about meditation, both uh, transcendental meditation, which Bill and I practice and mindfulness meditation. You know, as a as a tool for throwing off 
stress, right? Because if you don't have a healthy way to throw out stress, you either start barking at people or use unhealthy ways of substitutes and, and the like. Um, but it made me think about, there was an article, um, uh, I think in the New York Times, about ICU nurses, intensive care uh, nurses, and the degree to which, because it's so hard all the time, in part because they're surrounded by all these really people who are struggling so much and their families who are stressed out of their minds, because all emotions are contagious, they just absorb all of the stress. And eventually, to protect themselves, it's, it's easy for them to fall into the position of being more callous than they would like to be normally are, or certainly than the families would want them to be. And when they structure time for it as a group for them to do meditation, just to, they were, it, they had, it was so much easier for them to be empathetic. Um, and so goodness, I mean, <laughs> just, I'm thinking about, if we help teachers be less stressed, it helps kids learn better. Precisely. Precisely. And that's part of how you make middle school actually a beautiful journey. And of course, it's about other ages as well. But middle schoolers, yeah. the amount of rapid change they're going through is pretty stressful. So if they can be with teachers who can empathize, connect, enjoy the fact that they're on this crazy adventure, you know, it's such an easier road. Borrowing a line from Tina Payne Bryson, who is just, I love her work. She said, the way to develop resilience, and we want this for all of kids, right? Particularly because they're developing the brains to be carrying to adulthood, that the way to build resilience, which is really stress tolerance, it's adversity plus support. Mm. And that's all you need to, you don't have to save kids, but you just need to give them support. And so with this, uh, with this approach and, and kind of good SEL, you're saying, I know this is hard and, you know, I'm, I'm confident to get through this. Let's, let's see if we can work out some solutions together. Exactly. Exactly. You're honest sharing, you know, an occasional tool, a space where someone up here could also, you know, respond with their own thoughts on it. That's what advisory can be. Um, and yet I'll just say one last thing, just looping back around to your, your bigger question about changing middle schools. Um, I think the other really key thing that's doable without, you know, radical change is to make the school more permeable to the world around it, you know, to. Oh, I like it. Invite guest speakers in to, you know, have people who are experts or who have lived experience evaluate students' work uh, when you can to get out for field trips or apprenticeships. You know, they want to, especially later middle school, they want to be out there in the world. They don't want to be cooped up. They don't want to be babysat. Uh, and that world is, you know, for most middle schools, right outside the door. Uh, sometimes mm. inadvertently we forget about it. And to your point about how, you know, a generation or at least a century ago, kids of this age, young people of this age would be contributing to their household, to, you know, work, to farms, to caregiving, to whatever, you know, contributing, contributing, contributing. And we, you know, how important that is to feel valuable and, and valued as opposed to, well, let's do some more worksheets because eventually this is going to matter on the <laughs> Right, right. It's so hard to feel the relevance of that. You can quickly pick up the stress, but that yeah. sense of like, I'm making a contribution to people I care about. Uh, it's hard to feel that in a worksheet, but if you go out there, <laughs> do something in your community, uh, then you can feel it. Oh, I love it. Well, I am, I am, so grateful to have you share your experience with us, uh, and more so, delighted. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, look, I'm delighted. I'm so excited to to read this book when it comes out. 
um, because the way that you've shared with us of how you think about middle school is such, in some ways, a kind of a really a radical reimagining of what middle school is and can and maybe should be. I both use that word um, and one that you know both educators and parents can and, and kids because it's 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 not only better outcomes. It's this wildly hopeful, <laughs> optimistic message of turning what looks like a really hard time that we just endure to one that can be such such a place of growth and 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 kids finding the ground in the sense of themselves it's just great thank you so much ned it, it's an honor to get to work with them i really think they're the most underrated age group on the planet <laughs> so it's it's a pleasure <laughs> that's probably you know it's your i there, I, I think you're I think you're absolutely onto something. I, I can't think of a reason to think that that isn't true. Uh, and so to, to think of them as a source of great potential and, and and contributions even now, not just for the future, rather than as a problem to be a, to be fixed or to be to be endured. Um, Bingo. Hmm. I'm going to have to go back and give even higher props to my 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 pal Phyllis. Uh, we're going to have to connect you guys. If you, have you met? Do you, do you know I have. Phyllis? She is amazing. Okay. No. Yeah, very two glad of to you. know her. Man, too. Well, I, I look forward to seeing your this book out, you know, certainly on shelves and then I hope into the zeitgeist. because uh, you have a lot, you have a lot to share. And um, more importantly, so do these middle school kids. So thank you so much. Well, it's been great to get to talk through all this. Thanks again for having me. Delighted to have you. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.